The Lord be with you. Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. Dear friends, in this fourth Sunday of Lent, we gather at Boston University from across the city of Boston and, indeed, around the world, in a spirit of awe-filled wonder to worship Almighty God. We come in penitence and faith that the grace and mercy, peace and blessing of God will sustain us on the journey. Be welcome in the nave of Marsh Chapel, be welcome on the airwaves via WBUR 90.9 FM, and be welcome in internet signals at WBUR.org. A special welcome this morning to our preacher, a former dean of Marsh Chapel, the Reverend Dr. Robert Cummings Neville. We encourage your written or emailed responses, your prayerful and material support, your self-identification with your own form of ministry, and, as the spirits moves, your presence with us for worship. Let us stand as we are able in the praise of God.
Let us pray. Gracious Father, whose blessed Son, Jesus Christ, came down from heaven to be the true bread which gives life to the world, evermore give us this bread, that he may live in us and we in him, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. We stand on the fulcrum of life when we participate in the patterns of worship. We come and find ourselves balanced on the head of a pin, burdened with the weight of sin. We teeter between confession that leads to forgiveness and anxiety that leads to estrangement. Come, let us step out in confidence and faith as we confess our sins to God who saves us during the singing of the Kyrie. The good news of Jesus Christ for us today is that there is more love in God than sin in us. In the God who is trustworthy and true, let us walk in humility and gratitude, empowered by the Spirit to love and serve the world. When we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents amongst the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent, 
and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole, and whenever a serpent uh, bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. The word of the Lord. A lesson from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, 
you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us say responsively verses from Psalm 107 with the antiphon. the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, those he redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some were sick through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities endured afflictions. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and delivered them from destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to humankind. And let them offer thanksgiving sacrifices and tell of his deeds with songs of joy. And now, people of God, rise up in body as you are able, but certainly in heart for the singing of the Gloria Day and the reading of the Gospel.
Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Glory Glory to you, O Lord. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light, and do not come to the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You all surely have been in a car with small children on a long journey that seemed to them never to end. Perhaps you were among the children, perhaps the parents. Are we there yet? How much farther? Why can't I have more candy? Jimmy's been at the window five whole minutes. Now it's my turn. Boredom, plus a sugar high, makes the squabblers of the most amicable siblings. And parents in these circumstances can get testy and maybe even yell at the kids to keep still. But I've never heard of a parent throwing poisonous snakes into the back seat to silence the children with slow and painful deaths. Well, that's just what God did to the children of Israel, according to our text from Numbers. The Israelites were complaining about the march and the food, and God just got fed up. He sent the snakes, and the Israelites were dying, They begged Moses to get God to stop, and God gave instructions for Moses to make a magical bronze serpent, which, when looked at by any of those bitten by the snakes, would heal them. You see the image of the snake on a pole on ambulances and hospital doors symbolizes healing in our culture. Now, the first lesson to draw from the text is that you shouldn't believe everything the Bible says about God. I know that might be hard for some people to take, but we just have to learn to read the Bible with theological discretion. In this story, and in many others concerning the Exodus, God is portrayed as a petty, adolescent divinity who causes untold suffering to people just so that they will glorify him. Remember that God had hardened Pharaoh's heart against letting the Israelites go? 
for the explicit purpose of showing off God's power, as in killing off all the firstborn Egyptians. Well, if you read these stories, again, I recommend that you do that, as you would read a novel, big patches at a time, not little snippets, looking to interpret the individual characters, God there will seem a far cry from the almighty creator who loves each and every creature and who insists on justice. Even when you read those stories with the eyes of faith, not those of a literary critic, take the narrations that make God a player in a drama with a grain of symbolic salt. Remember that God is not really in the narrative, but rather creates it. Nevertheless, the narratives do have a point about God. In our numbers story of the snakes, the Israelites had been a complaining lot. And there was a similar instance in the previous chapter. Look it up. And of course, we might have some sympathy for the Israelites. They had not asked to be brought out of Egypt, where they had been living on welfare since the time of Joses two centuries before. The welfare had been transformed to workfare, but there's no evidence that their lives were worse than the lives of most of the Egyptians. It was Moses, or rather God's idea, to take the Israelites out of Egypt, promising them a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, moreover, God kept the Israelites tromping around the desert for 40 years for the explicit purpose of letting the adults who had come from Egypt die off before reaching the promised land, including Moses. No wonder the Israelites were a grumbling bunch, and they deserve some sympathy. The matter of complaints on life's journey, however, is more serious than the snake story suggests. Let that story be a symbol for the more serious matter. Life's journey aims at the promised land of peace and justice in society, of grateful care for the place we have in the cosmos, and of maturity, creativity, and responsibility in our personal lives. The promised land is not so important for being there, nice as that would be, but for getting there. God creates us to be on a journey through which our own creation is completed. Through our journeys, we live into ourselves. And we are in the wilderness, are we not? Our society is not at peace, whatever we profess. In fact, the gratuitous war in Iraq, which has killed many tens of thousands of our neighbors, has shown us to be a bellicose nation to the shame of our heritage. The journey to peace begins with the journey to become peacemakers, and we still have far to go. Our society is not just, however much progress we have made in some areas. Psychologists have shown that even after decades of working on racism, many people, both white and black, unconsciously see white people 
as more competent and trustworthy than black people. After decades of working to improve the status of women, many women and men unconsciously perceive men to be more competent in leadership than women, as Secretary of State Clinton complained in the last primary campaign. The work to achieve justice for sexual minorities has made some outstanding gains, especially here in Massachusetts. But bigotry against lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people is still fierce, still publicly acceptable, and still most vicious in churches, synagogues, and mosques. We are still in the wilderness. The image of God as transcendently just and merciful is a mirror that reflects back to us just how far we have to go and how much help we need. Because the transcendent creator's fecund love is as intimate to every creature as it is to us, it shines as our standard of justice and mercy in the promised land. The immensity of the Creator's love shames us when we dare to see and acknowledge where in our wilderness journey we are. We are in a wilderness of shame. We also are in a wilderness of blindness when it comes to caring for our place in the cosmos. Modern science has shown us to be in a universe vastly older and larger than anything imagined in biblical times. We are not its center, but off on the edge of one small galaxy amidst millions. The cosmos is not mainly about us. We first have to image and know God to be the creator of that vast cosmic extensiveness of reality before we can form an image of God as related to the particular affairs of human life. This God is awesome beyond measure, revealed more in the nuclear forces of the universe than in the human story, and the source of every blast of cosmic gas and dissipation of balanced order. To know our true humble place in creation, we need symbols of God of cosmic extension. Moreover, human life with its personal developments and narratives floats atop a density of nature almost immeasurably intensive. Our personal lives are embodied in the muscles, bones, and nerves of our body, which are sustained by our environment, which is made up of billions of ecologies of creatures, which are organisms of living and organic parts, microbes of cell life, balancing biochemical processes, fermenting in oceans of chemicals, in extremes of heat and cold, pressures and fissions, with nuclear forces binding and breaking, all springing forth from an astonishingly dense divine creative act. Until we can worship the God who creates us through this intensiveness of nature, system within system, we cannot put in perspective 
how to imagine our problems of living relative to God. The struggles, the stories, indeed wars of human beings are like a tiny spot of oil floating on an unmeasured ocean when we lift them up to the divine perspective. The vast cosmic extension and the immeasurably intense natural systems of our existence are the controlling symbols of the divine immensity. These symbols need to be the orientation points to which we refer when we play with the symbols of God as an actor in our dramas, hardening the heart of Pharaoh, killing the Egyptian firstborn, choosing Israel as a nation of priests, sending snakes to punish complainers, defeating the communists, making America the greatest power on earth, or calling for a crusade against Muslim terrorists. Stories like these are indeed human problems. We human beings do need to worry about these issues of war and peace, of survival and flourishing, and we need to understand how these issues relate to God. But before we imagine God squeezed into our dramas like a partisan actor, we need to bow in gratitude and awe before a divine creator as immense as the cosmos and intensively present in us as the depths of nature. Whereas our problems are all important to us, rightly, their scale in the divine creative act is tiny. Care for the environment is far more religiously important than national and cultural struggles. Our ridiculous pride in thinking God literally to be a partisan in our narratives leaves us in a wilderness of blindness. The journey by means of which we are created is personal for each one of us. Each of us must grow up, become mature, and take responsibility for the myriad issues of family and friends and career and community that come up on our watch. We all are at different places on our personal journeys, and many of our journeys intertwine like marriages and long friendships. This sense of personal journey is more familiar to us than the issues of a social journey and those of our journey to find a humble place in God's cosmos. Sometimes the wilderness of our personal journey does seem like a land of snakes. Other times, it is rather like a bracing hike. No one's journey is smooth all the way through. But things get really bad, don't they, when we begin to complain about the journey? Bad food, exhausting walks, poor economy, insufficient health, faithless friends, crippling indecision. When we complain, we seem to think that our personal journeys are all about us, when they really are about who we can be for God and for the world. Then we fall into a wilderness of insecurity. And you know what insecurity can lead to, fear, 
aggression, willful ignorance, irresponsibility, immaturity, addictive compulsions, and regression to uncivilized impulses. A wilderness journey in which we are shamed, blind, and insecure is something about which a complaint might indeed be lodged. And do we not complain? John the Evangelist used the story of Moses' snake lifted up in the wilderness as an image of healing that he likened to Jesus Christ being lifted up on the cross. You've got that analogy in our two readings. As the magical snake cured snake bite, so the crucified Jesus cures the poison in our souls. Now that passage in John has been interpreted with some mischief. Feminists have pointed out the danger in the line, the famous line, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that anyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Taking that line literally and associating Jesus with the crucifixion makes God look like a child abuser. So don't take the image of God as father there too literally as a guide to parenting. That passage also has been used to justify a kind of Christian exclusivism, namely that only Christians who believe in Jesus can be saved. But the passage does not say that Jesus was sent to start the Christian church. It says that he was sent as the light of the world, light of the world. Seeing the light is what gives eternal life. It's as if Jesus were a great flood lamp lifted up for all to see. Now our problem, according to John, is not whether the light is there. John says Jesus is the incarnation of the eternal Logos that is always present throughout the whole of creation. The problem, rather, is that we reject the light because we don't want our bad deeds to be known. If, however, we are true and accept the truths about our lives, we live in the light, and that is eternal life, says John. The truths about our lives are about our journeys through the wilderness, seeking peace and justice, a true and humble comprehension of our place in creation and how to care for it and the excellences of a personal life lived well with love for God and neighbor. This wilderness journey is difficult, and that's the truth. We can be shamed, blind, and insecure, and that's the truth. Shame, blindness, and insecurity can prompt endless complaining, and we do complain. That's the truth. As the cross, with Jesus hanging on it, is the ultimate wilderness journey, the gospel invites us to accept our wilderness journeys, even when undertaken with mind-numbing complaining, as our truth seen in the divine light. We don't have to be perfect in peace and justice, only struggling on toward greater peace and justice. 
We don't have to be able to comprehend the cosmic immensity of God, only to struggle to find our place within it. We don't have to be excellent, mature, responsible human beings, only working on it. We don't have to replace complaining with stoic indifference, only be honest with our complaints and stay on the journey. What we should not do is to seek for darkness when the light is all around us. The light shows us the truth about our lives, and this truth, however worthy of complaint sometimes, has the power of eternal life. Eternal life means many things. One of the most important is that our true being is what we are in and before God. Knowing this, and knowing that God is the creator of our lives in the wilderness, gives us all the confidence we need to embrace our lives as works of God, God's love. Living in the light of the truth gives us the energy and joy to turn all the struggles of our journeys into ways of manifesting God's love and for loving God in return. What a paradox that the horrible sight of Jesus lifted up on the cross, more gruesome in crucifixion than a snake on a pole, is so beautiful and healing. Our complaints can never be so disconsolate that the light cannot bring us through them into God's eternity.
seated. As we prepare our hearts for prayer, I invite you to stand, to sit, or to come forward to kneel at the altar, if it is your tradition to do so. Now let us sing together the call to prayer, Lead me, Lord. Spirit, quicken our hearts and minds to pray as you would lead us. We bring to mind and heart your creation, its stunning beauty, bountiful provision, and mysterious complexity. Thank you for the blessing of nature's abundance. We ask for wisdom in stewarding the earth's resources and protecting it for future generations. We bring to mind and heart those people close to us who support and love us, with whom we share history and hope. Thank you for the blessing of their presence in our lives. We ask for your love to overflow in us that we may serve and honor them as Christ. We bring to mind and heart those of us who face difficult decisions, those who fear to fail, and those who fear to succeed. We bring to places and people in conflict to your loving mercy. We ask for your peace in us and in these situations. We bring to mind and heart those who need healing, who suffer in body, mind, or spirit. Healing God, comfort those who are hungry, lonely, suffer injustice, or have no home. Give them courage and hope in their troubles, and help us to be your tangible presence in their sorrow. God of all comfort, we bring to mind and heart those who grieve the disappointment of their hope the ending of a relationship, the death of a loved one. We hold them in our hearts as you hold them in love. Gathering all these prayers together, these petitions spoken aloud and all the prayers that we hold in our hearts, 
We pray as Jesus taught his disciples, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. A warm welcome to Marsh Chapel this morning. We would love to get to know you and to help you get to know each other. And you can help us to do that by filling out those red friendship pads that the, at our, the end of each row. There's also, after the service, a light lunch and conversation and an a cappella group mustard, mustard seed will be giving a short concert in the Thurman Room as well. We would also love to hear from our radio and internet listeners. Our contact information is on the Marsh Chapel website, and on the website there is also an opportunity for online giving. Now, in our community this week, there are many events, and so I would encourage you to look at your bulletin and at the website for more details, but I want to highlight a couple of them. If you are interested in learning more about the sacrament of baptism and being baptized on the Saturday night Easter vigil in two weeks, please find me, Susan Forche, or another Marsh Chapel staff member after the service and make your desire known. Easter lilies are still on sale and the form is in your bulletin. Follow the directions on this form for payment and you can either drop it in the offering plate or you can turn it in at the church office downstairs. And now, our director of music, Scott Allen Jarrett, has a concert announcement. Good morning. It's my pleasure to announce to you this week's concert, uh, the St. John Passion of Johann Sebastian Bach. There's a wonderful, beautiful flyer uh, inserted in your bulletin this morning, designed by our own Kimmy Larmouth. Tickets are available at the office downstairs and at the door, or from a choir member. They look like this. They are $20 for general admission, and if you have a student ID, they are free. 
And we want you to come and be a part of this miraculous uh, piece, the St. John Passion, which has long been a tradition and part of our musical Lenten observances here at Marsh Chapel over these years. We have a wonderful, uh, the choir's been preparing since January. The Collegium will be participated and a wonderful group of soloists, including our own choral scholars. It's this Saturday night. Note the start time at 7.30, not 8 o'clock, but Saturday night here, March 28th at 7.30. We hope to see you there. Now walk in love as Christ has loved us.
gracious God, we offer these gifts because we believe in your loving and healing presence in this world. Help us to remain full of hope as we continue to offer our gifts of service each day. Amen. grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen.